This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate debuts a new format for the show with the first Let It Roll seance. This is for discussion of books where the author is unavailable and Nate has so much to say, a co-host isn't appropriate. The debut episode features Nate discussing Revolution in the Head, the Beatles records in the 60s by the late Ian McDonald. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm all alone, except for a ghost. The ghost of Ian McDonald, author of Revolution in the Head, The Beatles Records, and the 60s. It's been a long-standing problem on Let It Roll where I don't necessarily have access to all the authors whose work I would like to discuss. In the case of Mr. McDonald, tragically, uh, he passed away decades ago and uh, never got a chance to talk to him. I've tried to host discussions of this book with a couple of friends, very knowledgeable Beatles fans, but it didn't work out because I've read this book so many times and have so many deeply ingrained ideas that it ended up me being doing all the talking. So we just decided to hold a seance, and I'm going to try to summon up the spirit of Ian McDonald and discuss my response to his work, because this is a groundbreaking work of Beatleology. This was published, I think, originally in the late 80s, revised heavily in the 90s after the anthology came out, and then shortly after Mr. McDonald sadly uh, committed suicide, I think in 2003. Um, and the book was one of the first, if not the first, to do song-by-song -song technical analysis of the Beatles' music, which is somewhat problematic as a friend of the show kevin moore 
told me he's a serious musicologist and somebody who's written at least one book on the Beatles music from a very technical level that the danger of McDonald from a technical perspective is quote, and this is Kevin Moore saying this, he combines great writing with false musical information. He's like a biographer who just makes shit up to fit their narrative, but tells that narrative so beautifully that you wind up believing it. It's just like a great actor can play Einstein and convince you he's a genius. A great writer can feign musical knowledge. And then he cites multiple examples of McDonald identifying the wrong chord, uh, insisting that certain John Lennon melodies are all on one note when they're clearly not, et cetera, et cetera. So for the technicians out there, I'm not a technician and I wouldn't try to, I'm not saying that the value of McDonald is in his technical musical analysis. Um, I enjoy reading that kind of thing, but, um, generally have to get my guitar out to make heads or tails of it. And I hadn't done that with McDonald. So someone like Kevin who has done that or whose ear was so sensitive, he immediately picked up, well, that's not right. And so I can see where McDonald is, is, um, discredited to some extent there. But having said that for me, this book was a mind expanding cornerstone of the way I understand the Beatles and the way I understand music growing up when I first was exposed to the Beatles as a three, four-year-old child in the early 1970s, the Beatles were not cool. My older brothers who were in their teens and early 20s, none of them was a vocal Beatle fan. Well, maybe one of them, one of them was a vocal Beatle fan, but he liked Cat Stevens and Bread too. <laughs> a f- fine taste, but he liked he- I liked the pop stuff a little bit, but my brothers who liked uh, Willie Nelson or the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or Blue Oyster Cult, they were not into the Beatles. The Beatles were not cool in that rock guy way. My older sister loved them, and I shared, you know, her love. That's where I was introduced, and of course the radio, where they were pretty much ever present, even though that was one of their the biggest troughs of their popularity, which (laughs) has never ceased to be incredibly massive. So it's all relative, but only for the Beatles would that be considered a down period. But nonetheless, on the one hand, they were seen as a sort of outdated pop that couldn't compete with the heavy rock of the day, the Black Sabbaths and Led Zeppelins. And they were also had a sinister aspect and, Keep in mind, I'm growing up in a small Texas town post-Manson family. In fact, some of my earliest memories involve hearing the radio talking about the Manson family and also talking about the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. And in my child understanding of it, childish understanding of it, I had this vision of Mr. and Mrs. Manson having Patty Hearst in their closet. I didn't understand the concept of a hippie commune. I didn't understand that Patty Hearst and that Manson family had nothing directly to do with each other. I certainly didn't know anything about Patty Hearst's actual kidnappers and indoctrinators, the Symbionese Liberation Army, or any of that. I just had this notion that the Manson family was scary. We heard a lot about them, and they were linked to the Beatles. I can remember hearing a radio excerpt. And I remember hearing the voice of Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor of 
Charles Manson and the Manson family, and later the profiteer when he wrote the Helter Skelter book that I read voraciously by the time I was seven, uh, which is not a book I would recommend letting children read at that age, but I read it over and over again in my tween and teen years and was obsessed with the Manson family, and the Beatles' linkage was deep and profound. And that wasn't the only sort of garbled rumor linked to darkness that I associated with the Beatles. There were also rumors, and this is pre-internet, so it was very hard to fact check. And as a kid, I'm just listening to everything that I hear people talking about. And there's a lot of talk about hippies, and hippies are bad, and hippies are dangerous. And the hippies are dangerous meme definitely started with the Manson family slaughter of the Tate and LaBianca uh, households in 1969. And from the moment those murder scenes were discovered with the words Helter Skelter painted on the walls in blood, that was quickly linked to the Beatles. And when the investigation proceeded, Manson's philosophy was believed to have been derived from the Beatles in a very psychopathic or psychotic way. It wasn't a coherent philosophy, but it was powerful enough, according to Bugliosi and the prosecutors at the trial, to convince multiple people, seemingly healthy, normal, middle-class white American children when they met Charles Manson. And within months, they have turned into psychedelic gobbling mass murderers. And this obviously got the attention of the American public and, and along with the sort of heartland rejection of hippies um, or of countercultural values, drug use, sexual freedom, the civil rights support for the civil rights movement, et cetera. There's a huge backlash that really starts uh, or takes over in 1968 with the, you know, the riots of the democratic convention, the election of Richard Nixon. But so there's this ominous tone to hippies and the way they were spoken about in border Texas. And then there's these rumors like, Oh, the Beatles had a dead member. Somebody in the Beatles died and it was concealed and it was a secret. And the Beatles had secret messages in their music and secret messages. If you had an album cover, you could peel it back. And then there would be a picture of the Beatles naked underneath or a picture of the dead member dismembered in a car wreck. And none of that's true. And it's a garbling of multiple things. The Paul is dead rumor, which is a classic instance. And maybe it's not the first, but one of the, the most famous mass media paranoid conspiracy theories that became a mass phenomenon. This this notion that Paul McCartney had died in a motorcycle crash in 1966 and been replaced by somebody who looked just like him and was just as talented, who went on to even bigger and better things, which is extremely implausible, impossible to the point of impossibility and ridiculousness. Yet, all the same, it became such a powerful rumor in 68, 69 that McCartney actually had to come out of his Scottish farm and, and hold a press conference to say he wasn't dead. And so these echoes of this rumor were still filtering through without the debunking, without the fact checking that you could get with the Internet today. And you know, nobody knew about Stu Sutcliffe, but a beetle had died. He had died in 1962 from a, a brain tumor, but he hadn't been a beetle when they were famous and had, had barely been a member even when they were successful in Liverpool. He was, he was a member uh, and mainly in their first and second stands in Hamburg. 
and had died. But so there was some truth to that. And the, the, the rumor about peeling the album cover back, they did do that. There was an album called Yesterday and Today that has a photo of the Beatles looking pretty disheveled, sitting around a steamer trunk, looking completely disinterested in the photo. And the original photo for the album is this crazy photo session where the Beatles dressed up in butcher smocks and covered themselves in dismembered baby dolls and raw meat. And it was a metaphorical statement for their displeasure at Capitol Records dismembering their albums, butchering their babies. And uh, Capitol was so asleep at the switch that they released this album as such and only recalled it after there was massive um, protest and it became clearly a mistake. And so they had printed up so many copies of this that they just printed sticky sheets of the new cover and pasted it over the old. So several dozen people found, I think it might be hundreds actually of copies of the original Butcher cover that got out into the wild um, the photo was by Robert Whitaker. And this melange of rumor and aspect of sinisterness, I think, is not something that people who are introduced to the Beatles in, say, 1964, when they were the lovable mop tops and were suddenly the most popular thing in the world experienced, or people who were just a few years younger, who, you know, later became Monkeys fans. But when the Beatles happened, they were too young to be swept up in enthusiasm and maybe their mom made them wear a beetle wig that happened to a friend of mine who ended up becoming a big monkeys fan a few years later. Uh, and, and that's of course, Ed Legg, our, our co-host here on let it roll for the eighties roll series and several of our other discussions. But, um, the point I'm trying to make is different people, different generations had different introductions to the Beatles. And I think that my pocket of Gen X got this, version of the Beatles where they had already broken up and they'd already taken on this sinister rumored aspect. I mean, you know, John's associated with Yoko. Paul is, if not dead, he's the guy who broke up the Beatles. George has this brief run, 70, 71, 72, as the most successful ex-Beatle. And Ringo's having multiple hits. Ultimately, you know, George runs his string out with a, a really disastrous tour of the U.S. in 1974, but in the early 70s, he's the Beatle that still has the mojo. He's holding the concert for Bangladesh. His album, All Things Must Pass, is this grand statement and massive commercial success. Of course, his plagiarism charges uh, for My Sweet Lord later you know, take some of the shine off of that as well as other aspects. But let's get back to McDonald and get to his point. And one of the things that he discusses that I like, like one of the questions I struggled with is, if the Beatles are so great and such a positive force, why is the world they've had so much influence on going down the toilet so fast? <laughs> and I've been told I'm a chicken little that I always see the sky falling. But many of my predictions and worries were just early and they've ultimately been borne out. I'm somebody who was worried about mass pandemics since the late 90s and we finally had COVID. I was not surprised at all. And I've been anticipating World War III for quite a while, and it seems we're getting closer regardless. I do think that if the Beatles were this magical, transcendent, neo-religious force, that we would see more proof in the pudding. And McDonald helped me answer some of those questions and presented the Beatles in context of the 1960s and showed that they were actually 
resisting the changes that were going on in the 60s, the, the, the hyper-individualism, the road to neoliberalism that ultimately results in Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and the political system that still rules today from Reagan to Bush to Clinton to Obama. Trump may or may not be a break in that, but Biden definitely isn't. Richie Sunak in Britain definitely isn't a break with the Margaret Thatcher tradition. So these, this ethos is still ruling us. And the Beatles, according to McDonald, uh, opposed that. And the second thing was that he identified why, or at least had a theory as to why the Beatles were so attractive to people like Charles Manson or Mark David Chapman, the, the murderer of John Lennon, or to the uh, man who uh, broke into George Harrison and Olivia Harrison's home in the late 90s and, and nearly killed George Harrison and probably did contribute greatly to his imminent death of cancer just a few years later since he was in cancer remission, gets attacked, stabbed in the lungs, and then the cancer spreads to the lungs. It seems uh, pretty related, at least it would take a big whack. But the McDonald manages to link this to practices the Beatles adopted in the studio refers to it as randomness and this idea that um, their use of this is McDonald I'm quoting this their use of quote random borrowed from the avant-garde veered from the dazzling to the downright daft and then as always originality was a short step from absurdity and such was the intensity of the Beatles' cultural context from 1966 to 1969 that a certain amount of misinterpretation was guaranteed. And so when the Beatles did things like wrote lyrics to a song like Glass Onion in which John Lennon says, the walrus was Paul. Well, the walrus wasn't Paul. John was the man in the walrus costume. John sang the lead vocals on the walrus. I am the walrus. John wrote, I am the walrus. And yet he deliberately chose to write a song in Glass Onion in which he tells people the walrus was Paul. And it's a deliberate, he admitted as much, it's a deliberate attempt to mess with the heads of English students and other people taking the Beatles music too seriously. People who are applying, you know, sophomoric English uh, literary analysis to the Beatles lyrics, which isn't a fun process for any author, I'm sure. And John Lennon especially hated it. And so he chose to fuck with those people, which is a totally John Lennon response, a totally reasonable response. But when you have a platform of the size of the Beatles and you combine it with the second factor, which was Lennon's messianism, like writing songs like uh, hey bulldog with the chorus if you're lonely you can talk to me you know uh give peace a chance uh etc cetera, etc cetera. there's multiple songs where um lennon adopts a messianic role the word being one of the classic you know the word is love the word is good and you know in 1968 even had a nervous breakdown to the extent that he called a full meeting of all of the beatles business leadership and the full members of the band sits down at the head of the table and announces, I am Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, you know, everybody kind of, Ringo said, let's go to lunch. And they dissolved the meeting immediately. But this is the uh, an indication of, of some of the struggles Lennon was having with being put in this position or having raised himself to this position of being someone where 
thousands of people probably did think he was Jesus Christ, if not more, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And if you read contemporaneous writings from the 1960s, it's almost astonishing how many Beatles fans are so overawed by their seeming incredible and inexplicable artistic progression from I want to hold your hand to Hey Jude to Sgt. Peppers, etc., that they seem to believe that the Beatles would continue to grow and evolve infinitely and that they were, you know, someone like Timothy Leary is out there speaking of messianic advocating, you know, the mass willy nilly taking of LSD, which provides this simulation of the kind of religious experience that human beings prior to that had to rigorously practice occult methods or religious methods for decades to have even a mild sort of hallucinatory experience. Someone like Teresa of Avila or a, a Central American shaman would have done that in a very disciplined context with mentors, with methods, with leadership, so that when the inevitable pitfalls are hit, there's some warning, some safety net. In the 60s, this chemical synthesis of this experience was widely available and being passed out willy-nilly to kids who were not prepared for the experience, to say the least. And so there were many, many cases of burnout and madness and disaster. Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd's one obvious example, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, Skip Spence of Moby Grape, Rocky Erickson of the 13th Floor Elevator, so many artists who had such promise and were so bright-eyed and, and dazzling and then had one too many psychedelic experiences and never really came back. And this book is one of the first books that hinted that John Lennon had had a similar experience and that he had annihilated his personality by taking massive doses of LSD every day for 18 months, roughly, from late 1965 into uh, 67 or 68. And according to some accounts, erased his originally, original personality to the extent that Beatles press man Derek Taylor had to spend a weekend with him playing all the Beatles records to John and telling him, this is you, that's Paul, this one's George, this is you again, oh, this is one of your songs, oh, you co-wrote this one with Paul, and reintroducing the man to his work and to his own identity. And if you look at Lennon, the difference between Mop Top Lennon, this razor sharp, sarcastic, always together, always witty, always clever, but always edgy and hostile young man with the later 60s Lennon with the long hair parted in the middle and the granny glasses on his face and the jeans jackets and sort of earthy uh, appearance and frequently with Yoko Ono or almost always with Yoko Ono right by his side. Um openly advocating for peace, openly admitting that he had been abusive to women and decrying that abuse. And uh, a very much gentler personality, somebody who is openly advocating for peace and saying the reason I'm, I'm not I'm against war, but I'm also against interpersonal violence, the kind that I had expressed as a young man. And so there's this massive personality change. And um, I find it kind of inspirational that Lennon was able to go through those depths. And unlike Sid Barrett or Skip Spence, he was able to come through it and reforge a new personality. 
And apologies, it's a new format and uh, the seance room is dark and I didn't see Steph's chats alerting me that I needed to cue the song. So I'm going to do two songs back to back. First, we've got the Beatles doing Some Other Guy live at the Cavern Club in 1962. This is the from the first film taping. It was intended for IFT. VTV and never aired, but it's the Beatles with John and Paul singing in unison harmony, Libra and Stoller's Some Other Guy. Not with some other guy from the Beatles, a formative song. It's derivative of Ray Charles' What I Say, which was an absolute epic influence on the Beatles and the whole Liverpool beat scene. And some other guy was a pretty obscure hit and a minor RB chart hit uh, in America. But for the Liverpool scene, it became yet another anthem. And they uh, adopted it after Stu Sutcliffe left the band. They stopped singing What I Say uh, in his honor and later his memory and replaced it with some other guy. But now let's hear our next cue, which is from the Hard Day's Night album. This is the bridge to I'll Be Back. And that was I'll Be Back from the Beatles' Hard Day's Night album, the original UK edition, a John Lennon classic. And, and I'll come back to this later, but another virtue of McDonald's book was that he emphasized the craft and power and excellence of the early Beatles material, which is frequently dismissed um, in favor of the post-1967 material. But actually, the musical quality was quite consistent from the beginning. Really, the dramatic change comes in studio experimentation, alternative instrumentation, and different lyrical style, the influence of Bob Dylan and others forcing them to sort of up their game lyrically. But if you're a believer in pure pop, such as myself, you don't have to have great lyrics to have great song craft. And something like I'll Be Back absolutely does. And McDonald nails that. But I want to get to the second piece of this random and, and the danger and McCartney's contribution to that. Because, you know, if you listen to A Day in the Life, there's the famous alarm clock in the background right before McCartney sings, woke up, fell out of bed. That seems like masterful special effects and certainly was greeted as a brilliant, deliberate thing by listeners in 1967 and since. But it turns out that was a function of four-track technology's limitations, that they had written a song they had a beginning couple of verses, they had this middle eight, um, and they had an ending verse, but they had a big, big section in the middle they didn't know what to put, and they knew it would be 32 bars. And so Mal Evans literally sets an alarm clock to go off and tell them when to start this Paul McCartney 
uh, second part of the song. And because of the way four track works, they couldn't get it off the track if they wanted to. So it was very fortunate that it was a perfect, perfect synchronicity, that it was the absolute perfect sound effect for that point in the song. And McCartney was so struck by that moment, and things like that had happened before. They'd already done backwards uh, uh, recording on the song Rain and all over the Revolver album. But McCartney, at least according to McDonald, seemed to think to go from this belief that, wow, that was a lucky chance and it really worked out to anything we do will work out and that randomness takes on its own meaning. And as McDonald says, originality was a short step from absurdity and they got there very fast. And I want to read a little bit about from McDonald about what he has to say about randomness. And this is from his discussion of the song Glass Onion, which I mentioned. And he says, this is not to damn creative randomness in itself. Few artists outside the canons of tradition have refused to improve their work merely because the way to do so struck them by accident. Yet to treat chance-determined productions as identical with material intentionally vested with meaning is to meddle in a relativism that can only escalate toward chaos. And chaos draws psychopaths. For many modern artists, aleatory procedures, literally those of the dice man, meaning random, are so basic as to be beyond question, an assumption maintained by their audiences, which are usually small enough to prevent such phenomena spreading far enough to affect unstable minds. In rock, the audience has no predictable bounds, and stars often find themselves harassed by demented individuals among the mil millions following their careers. To the extent that they were invoked by the aleatory philosophy of derangement associated with the 60s counterculture, obsessions such as those which beset Charles Manson and later Lennon, Lennon's assassin Mark David Chapman were inevitable. As prominent advocates of the free associating state of mind, the Beatles attracted more crackpot fixations than anyone apart from Dylan. While at the time they may have seemed enough like harmless fun for Lennon to make them the subject of the present sneeringly sarcastic song, Glass Onion, in the end they returned to kill him. And I found this to be a mind-blowing insight that the Beatles had drawn this darkness, which was my first impression of the Beatles, keep in mind. For me, that there was always something sinister and mysterious and frightening about the Beatles, even at the same time as they're presented in the context of my sister's soft rock uh, favorites, like Jim Croce and Bread. There was always some dark undertow. And that was what called out to people like Manson and Mark David Chapman. And the fact that they knowingly played with these effects and that they had from the beginning deliberately manipulated their audience which all artists do which is part of the nature of art but you know this is a band that wrote a song called thank you girl after they had their first hit as a thank you message to the girls which was the bulk of their audience who had bought, bought um from me to you and please please me they deliberately did this knowing it would have this immediate intimate impact which is why their first songs were things like please please me from me to you they were very much wanting to create this illusion of a one-to-one -one relationship with one with young girls who would be falling in, in love with them as teen idols which phenomenon they had seen not just with elvis but also homegrown british idols like 
Duffy Power and Vince Eager and this generation, you know, uh, the Cliff Richards generation of stars that preceded them, where the pop audience was seen as just underdeveloped young girls, the mo- one of the most, you know, uh, held in contempt demographics in society uh, historically, and that there was this sort of exploitation aspect and this kind of fascinate or dismissal of these hysterical young girls going crazy for these silly pop stars. And the Beatles very much snuck in as that, as a novel form and, and with a new fashion and a new kind of ridiculous outlandish fashion. But so people didn't react to them as a threat. If the Beatles had appeared fully formed in their 1969 guys in 1964, America would have rejected them violently. I mean, there would have been no appearance on the Ed Sullivan show for the beginning, from the beginning. And so it was very, I don't, I wouldn't say clever, but it just worked out that way that they presented as this harmless joke, mockable thing. I mean, that was the American, the older American generation's response, the World War II generation's response to the Beatles was, oh, this is good fun. I'm going to buy a Beatle wig and do the twist at the party this Friday. And lots of lots of them did that. And the Beatles up through Sgt. Pepper's were just as popular with older generations as they were with younger generations because they seemed so harmless. So that's that was the insight to me. Uh, that McDonald had. And that's when, you know, later through reading Ted Joy and others and hearing Paul McCartney say it too, music is magic. And it's this, uh, this tool that some human beings can use to manipulate the emotions of other human beings. And I don't mean manipulative in a pejorative sense. I just mean, if I want to make mom feel better, I can sing her a happy song. And she's happy. And if I want to make people sad to share some sadness I'm feeling, I can play a minor chord in my song and make people sad that way. And the Beatles understood music at a higher level than we do. I mean, unless you're a musical genius yourself, and hopefully there's a few of you out there, but there's very few people in this audience that understand a song at the level, say, Paul McCartney or George Harrison would understand a song when they heard it, that they hear all kinds of, ah, he's there's that trick again. Oh, I see what he's doing there. I see what she's done with that, with that change from the chorus to the verse. Very clever. I'm going to steal that and do that myself. And most listeners, I think, are just having this emotional experience without it. But the Beatles were musicians, and so they were taking it apart in their head. And that was just priceless to me for McDonald and and makes me forgive so many of, I mean, uh, the musical missteps that I'm oblivious to that my friend Kevin Moore (laughs) can't get away from. But it's also that he put them in context of the 1960s. And he did it in the 1990s when neoliberalism was at its peak and seemed like I I personally was convinced it was a good idea after the fall of the Soviet Union and the seeming success of the Reagan and Thatcher economic projects. It seemed like the way to go. From the perspective of 2023, it seems like a disastrous mistake that's led us into ruin or near ruin or clearly on the road to ruin. But McDonald's writing in the 90s as someone resisting neoliberalism and trying to warn against it and pointing out at the time – the Beatles were in the 90s very much celebrated. This is he's writing right before the Britpop mo- movement, and Oasis and others are going to really lionize the Beatles. And I think Gen X came back and 
loved the Beatles in an unabashed way, in a way that the second wave of boomers had not. The, 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 the older boomers had had Beatles shoved down their throats for so long and wanted to get away from it. And if you're going to a Black Sabbath concert and taking quaaludes and drinking wine, the Beatles are not on your, you know, in your eight-track deck on the way to the concert in all likelihood. But in Gen X eras, from the time Prince is around the world in the day, comes out the Paisley Underground in L.A. with bands like the Bangles and the Dream Syndicate and the Three O'Clock. There's this open celebration of psychedelia throughout the 80s. And it's no coincidence, as we've discussed on the show in the past, that psychedelic drug use was at its peak in America in the 1980s. This is when the Grateful Dead are the, the year after year, the largest concert draw in the country and are supporting people that are dealing drugs. And it's time to take a sponsor break. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And another thing about McDonald's that that I want to say is I I don't want to, as much as I'm talking about the dark side of the Beatles, I don't want to diminish them or their accomplishment. I think their accomplishment was incredibly positive. I mean, as we've discussed with John Hicks most recently, but Mark Lewison and so many other great guests we've had on to discuss the Beatles, the Beatles have this profound ability to bring joy into people's lives and to make people feel happy to be alive. And our probably the most universally popular musician of the 20 musicians of the 20th century. And I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish or demean that, but I'm, I'm also trying to grapple with the consequences. When you unleash that kind of positive power, there's also negative power that comes with it and is unleashed and the two swirl out. And so they come into this chaotic human world, echo and reverberate and are twisted by others and imitated and, and, and misinterpreted. And so um, I think that's what McDonald helped me clarify and understand. And, and, you know, when you go back and read something like what I think is the greatest literary work ever written about rock music, which is Stanley Booth's True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, and you get to the climactic sequence when he's contrasting the burial of Brian Jones with his narrative of the buildup and to the disaster at Altamont. And he recounts his conversations with Mick and Keith in the plane as uh, a couple days before as they're planning Altamont and getting ready. And it's clear that both Jagger and Richards, who are now seen as a cynical, you know, not part of the, you know, they never believed the hippie revolution. Keith Richards famously said, I'm so proud I never kissed the Maharishi's feet or any of that crap. And yet Brian Jones did. And Mick and Keith both told Stanley Booth that they really believed that their music was on the leading vanguard of a revolution that would affect massive positive change that would dramatically change the attitudes of people's lives right before they land at Altamont and learn brutally learn otherwise that they did not have that power, that whatever power they had was not fully under their control. And when they were in circumstances such as being surrounded by the hell's angels and a sea of half a million drug addled, unwashed youth, that there was nothing they could do to make things better. And the Beatles were part of that equation. And this, this, I think that their power and the fact that they could surprise and inspire awe and wonder in so many listeners people you know i I imagine if if you were in the world before the beatles and the beatles came and and you were a beatles fan talk about found money talk about a windfall i mean my god this comes out of nowhere i've never seen heard anything like this what a joyous sound what joyous people what wonderful characters and so many people had that experience through the 60s and they kept up in the ante you know it, it goes from please please me to hard day's night in a very short period of time and it's clearly growth i know i'm not going to say that it's better because to me nothing is 
better than I saw her standing there. I mean, that's the greatest song I ever heard when I'm listening to it. I always say my favorite song is the one I'm listening to right now. And these are really good songs. But when you go from I saw her standing there and in just two years, you're doing A Hard Day's Night and then you're doing Help and then you're doing Norwegian Wood and the entire Rubber Soul album and the entire Revolver album album and then sergeant pepper drops you can see why people had this belief and then when the beatles are dropping songs like the word that's explicitly messianic and saying we have the answer and then do the live all you need is love recording and this is where another set of problems with mcdonald comes in because mcdonald i think correctly identifies that the beatles were a cohesive unit that was working at their most productive from the beginning up through Sgt. Pepper's. And that after that, and it syncs exactly with the death of their manager, Brian Epstein, that after that, that they were holding the piece, the fragments together, and that Paul McCartney in particular was trying to keep these forces from spinning off. And they managed to put together this run of work that is today their most beloved stuff, Sgt. Pepper's Magical Mystery Tour, uh, Lady Madonna, the White Album, Let It Be, Abbey Road, that, that this is the Beatles that is the most beloved today and people see as this is their mature work. But McDonald points out this was work that was created by a band in disarray that's no longer completely unified that you know john lennon's struggling with heroin addiction and, and writer's block and mccartney is struggling with his overpowering personality and, and trying to not provoke george harrison and ringo Starr and john lennon into open rebellion and yet still lead this band into doing things because if it was left up to lennon and the rest they probably would have laid around a lot and made half or a quarter or a third of the amount of music that they did it was only because mccartney had this relentless drive to create that he was able to get them out there and some of his concepts were kind of half-baked or failures at the time like magical mystery tour the original get back sessions i mean so massively ambitious who makes a movie without a script right? <laughs> and manages to get it aired on the BBC on Boxing Day, the most popular uh, TV television watching day of the year in that era? You know, the, the Beatles um, were always swinging for the fences and trying these ambi crazy ambitious things like who gets the idea that, OK, guys, we're going to sit down and we're going to write, learn, practice, perform and record an entire album's worth of song in a month and plan a massive ambitious concert, perhaps in the Roman Colosseum or something like this. And anybody who's been listening to Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg talk about the Roman Colosseum knows that that's kind of a warning sign that things aren't going to go the way that you plan. And so obviously we did get the Let It Be album out of that. And then they get back sessions and then they get back documentary. So they produced a lot of wonderful stuff that continues to bring people joy, but it wasn't what they were going for. This is where it gets to my second beef with McDonald. But let's let's introduce the song, and this is a bit of a non sequitur, but this is that means a lot.
And that was That Means a Lot, which was an outtake uh, Paul McCartney song from the Help Sessions. And the Help Sessions had uh, the most unreleased songs of any Beatles series of sessions ever. And That Means a Lot was apparently McCartney's answer to Ticket to Ride, his attempt to write something in that style. And he couldn't quite pull it off. They ultimately gave it to the vocalist PJ Proby uh, to, to try to do because he had a voice more suited to that kind of big melodramatic tune. Um, and, and McDonald's analysis of help and, and his analysis of the outtakes, which were revealed on the anthology album, was very insightful and helpful. But where he crosses my lines and across a lot of people, he didn't like the later period Beatles. He was not a rock fan. He liked rock and roll. He liked pop, but he didn't like rock. And rock, it's an unfortunate nomenclature, and some people get mad at me for using it, but this is the nomenclature that music critics have used for the past 50 years or 55 years, so I'm not going to try to fight it. But rock and roll is Elvis, Chuck Berry, early Beatles, etc. Rock is when that music combines with the folk music of Bob Dylan and the R&B pop coming out of Motown and the sunshine pop coming from the Beach Boys and, you know, the Rolling Stones bringing in the chess Chicago R&B influences and you get something new. You get second era Beatles. You get the Jumpin' Jack Flash era Rolling Stones. You get Jimi Hendrix, the avatar, the living embodiment of rock music. You get Bob Dylan's rock period where rock suddenly becomes serious music and it's no longer for dancing. And that's, you know, I've spoken with Elijah Wald about his brilliant book, How the Beatles Killed Rock and Roll. That's what he's describing. It's this transition from rock and roll being dance music and fun music for women primarily. And seeing you know this free expression that was free from all the kind of seriousness of jazz albums or folk albums for classical music for college students and serious thought let's sit down and listen to this music rather than hey let's get up and dance to the song that was a hit before our mother was born etc cetera, etc cetera. but mcdonald really hates songs like all you need is love or um while my guitar gently weeps and just misunderstands the appeal and i'm not saying they're immune to criticism i think every every song can be picked apart and no song is perfect and but i think when you're attacking while my guitar gently weeps or dismissing while my guitar gently weeps you're clearly wrong i mean all you have to do is watch the concert for george which his son danny harrison organized in the aftermath of his death and brought together all these performers who had loved George and known George, like Ringo and Paul, of course, but friends like Eric Clapton, Leon, you know, so many, not Leon Russell, but so many from that, 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 that era uh, that had played with George and so many of his friends and the Monty Python guys who he had patronized and produced their films. And when Paul McCartney plays the piano introduction to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and looks at Eric Clapton, you can see, and look at Danny Harrison, and you can see the three of them. You can see Eric and Paul looking at each other and looking at Danny and seeing George. And there's this incredible power to that. And, you know, like Rilke said, you cannot, nothing is so unamenable to be approached by criticism as art. <laughs> art exists on this mystical plane. And when you're trying to explain it, it's, you know, John Lennon himself who said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture, which for someone who writes about music, that's <laughs> kind of a painful thing, but it's true. There's no, 
magic that I can summon with my words alone that can match the power of music performed by our, you know, a rock band in its heyday. I don't think rock bands have that power anymore, but I think from the 60s through the 90s, they definitely did. Anyway, and so like McDonald will dismiss a song like All You Need Is Love, and to him, it's nothing but hippie pablum and, and silliness. But when you read about the construction and the origin of that song, it was commissioned. It wasn't inspired. It was commissioned because Brian Epstein had booked them to play this live satellite event that people from every country in the world were presenting uh, 30 minutes to an hour of televised entertainment that was then for the first time ever satellite broadcasted simultaneously around the world. So the Beatles are performing for the largest audience ever assembled in human history. They're performing for hundreds of millions of people, many of whom don't speak English. So John Lennon writes a tune that's pretty damn close to three blind mice with lyrics that are seemingly simple, but also a little bit profound. And McDonald misses that because he mistakes the simplicity for sim simplisticness. And that's the kind of clunker that that you know McDonald will indulge in that makes a lot of people reject him. But for me, uh, Ian McDonald was a seer and helped me understand and is a big piece of what I'm trying to convey in the Let It Roll project, which is that if magic, if music is magic, and people like Paul McCartney and John Lennon use this magic to change the moods, to change the society, to gain personal wealth. I mean, they would frequently joke, hey, let's sit down and ride a swimming pool. Like there was an element of the Beatles that were very shrewd, calculating businessmen. If you look at their history, the way Mark Lewison has done in, in such great, well-documented detail, the legend of the Beatles, of John and Paul, coming together in the late 50s and spending the next five years diligently writing songs is not true. They came together, they wrote a few songs, they spent a little time writing songs together. But then as they became a performing act that mostly did covers, that solely did covers, they didn't have any incentive to write songs, so they wrote very few. But then once the prospect of recording came along, and they understood that that's where the money was, that the songwriters got the money. Then they suddenly go to work and start producing their body of work. But let's go ahead and hear our last song. This is the original demo of Strawberry Fields Forever. John Lennon, I believe, according to George Martin, sitting on a stool with an acoustic guitar in the studio at Abbey Road, presenting that song to the Beatles and George Martin for the first time. No one had ever heard it before. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's incredibly beautiful and powerful. And to me, 
the story of Strawberry Fields Forever in which a young man, I mean, he was only 27 years old at this point, maybe 26, who has just come off of five years of, or four years of the most intense fame any human being in history has endured up to that point. I mean, this these guys were the first, the most famous people at the peak of the broadcast era. They were broadcast on television, they were seen on film and heard on record and heard on radio and read about in mass-produced newspapers and magazines to an extent that no one had ever been before. And then that audience or elements of that audience turns against him because of his comments like we're more popular than Jesus, which was said in a different context in a different interview, but when it was seized upon by American yokels in the Bible belt and used to fuel this backlash against the Beatles and people are literally burning huge piers of Beatle records and the Ku Klux Klan is openly talking on television in Memphis, Tennessee about how something might happen, how they're planning a terroristic attack at the Beatles concert that night. And this is just after the Beatles have survived this disastrous tour of Manila when Ferdinand Marcos loosed mobs of people on them with no security after spending a whole day on TV talking about how the Beatles had snubbed the first lady and had you know, insulted the entire country. And they showed Imelda Marcos sitting awkwardly at this banquet she had served for the Beatles that they didn't show up for. And then they get to the airport and goons are pushing them around and, you know, they, they're threatened and bullied and money is taken from them. And, and then they finally get to get on the plane. And then two of them are called out including Mal Evans. I can't remember if Brian Epstein was the other one. But Mal Evans, that big, beautiful roadie who had protected them in so many chaotic scenes, is called out. And he literally didn't know if he was ever going to be seen again, if he was heading off to his death. And he tells him, you know, give my love to my wife, and is taken off the plane. And Lennon is experiencing all this in a context in which he's been taking LSD every day for months. I don't think anybody can comprehend the level of psychic trauma that he was enduring in this period. I mean, everybody has their own psychic trauma. And I don't know that, you know, Lennon's was any privileged over anyone else. I'm just saying he was playing the game at a scale and at a level that none of us, uh, very few of us will ever experience. And maybe only he and McCartney and the other Beatles ever really experienced it to the full intensity. So he's at this locus of this raging hurricane and he goes, he takes a break from the Beatles. They all, they all, you know, they stop touring and they take extended holidays and he goes to Spain to make this movie and he's a gifted natural actor, but it's not a craft he studied or something. He, he really, a profession he cared to indulge in and he's so successful at music. He's not inclined to want to work that hard at it. And a big part of being in a movie set is hours and hours of boredom. And a movie set far away in a foreign country in a desert, even more hours of boredom. I mean, he, he actually had Ringo sent out to entertain him and to keep him company during this. But that he came back from all that with Strawberry Fields Forever. To me, that's one of the highest forms of achievement a human being can accomplish. And that to me is kind of the wonder of the Beatles is that they went through these experiences that ground up, and I don't want to say lesser men, but less well-prepared people, uh, you know, like Janis Joplin or Sid Barrett or Jimi Hendrix himself, that, that 
are exposed to this glare of fame and the pressures of the money and the ugliness of the business and the intoxicants and the drugs and the alcohol and the overindulgence in, in sex and couldn't handle it. And it destroyed them quickly. And the Beatles lasted and lasted and lasted. And there's stories about them in the back of the limo laughing grimly the way that policemen or nurses laugh at a tragedy because they have to. But being in the back of the limo and reading in the paper about some peer or friend who's flamed out and melted down, you know, and saying, ah, he didn't last long, did he? You know, three hits and he's out. <laughs> and and they could say that because they had been through so much together and stayed together and continued to be productive. And, I, you know, that's the big accomplishment. And I was raised to believe that art was the highest accomplishment that human beings were capable of, that art had replaced religion as this holy pursuit. And I believe that. But I think now, post Bill Cosby, post Harvey Weinstein, post R. Kelly, when, and, you know, we always knew this about people like Jerry Lee Lewis or Phil Spector as well, that artists can be profoundly flawed, sometimes evil human beings. Someone like Michael Jackson, who went from this avatar of childhood purity, whose talent dazzled and radiates innocence and beauty and love as a member of the Jackson Five, and then watching him triumph through Thriller and then devolve into the plastic surgery disaster of the 90s and 2000s and, and making work like Ghost that is disturbing and frightening and not compelling in the way Michael believed it to be or intended it to be. And then you watch something like Leaving Neverland and I don't know if those allegations are all literally true, but it certainly seems where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, Jackson lost litigation to numerous children that alleged he had been harmed. He faced criminal criminal trial, although he was acquitted. But, you know, R. Kelly was acquitted the first time, too, and was clearly guilty of sin. So I think we've learned that art is not the highest calling, uh, or it's not a pass, that just because somebody is a great artist does not mean that they're a great human being and should be forgiven all their sins. I mean, and, you know, if you're a Christian, and you believe Jesus can forgive all your sins, that's a different category. But that humanity and society should forgive all their sins is no longer true. And I think Ian McDonald and his book, Revolution in the Mind, Revolution in the Head, I'm sorry, the Beatles records in the 60s, is one of the people that first warned me of that and hipped me to that. So I highly recommend reading this book, and I hope you've enjoyed the first Let It Roll Sounds. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, we continue the Let Motown Roll miniseries with a recast of Nate's 2019 interview of Adam White co-author Barney Alice of Motown, The Sound of Young America, which focuses on the business side of Motown and Barry Gordy's right-hand man. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? 
What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.